This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Hey, do you all remember the things that you sing about? Okay, we just sang a song, right? Actually, I changed my introduction. We just sang a song, right? It says, Oh God, reveal your what? Your laundry? No, your glory, right? Reveal your glory through the what? Ah, the preacher of your word. Okay, that's good that you all actually pay attention to the words of the song, right? Because I think that when we come to church, when we come to a gathering of God's people, actually, the heart of uh, coming and studying God's word is to see the glory of God, right? If we just come to church and uh, we just sort of study God's word and we kind of are untouched by the glory of God, and we sort of see it as just an intellectual exercise or a moralistic exercise or things we have to do and don't do, then we're really missing the point about the God that we meet in the Bible. So today as we look at the passage, it's actually continuing on from uh, last week's sermon, which is about 146, which is about hallelujah. So hallelujah is literally praise the Lord. And that's how we begin today's passage, right? And it says in verse 1, Praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise Him. Now, it begins by saying that actually the praise of God is a fitting, good, and right thing to do. You know, it's a bit like, uh, you know, I was thinking about this illustration, but I think for most of you, you may not understand. It's like, you know, when you play tennis and you hit the ball in the middle of the racket, or, you know, when you, when you make a plan and everything comes together, there's a fittingness to it, right? There's a rightness to it. And what this passage is saying is that there is a rightness to praising God. You know, it just feels right. It is right to do it. It's an appropriate thing to do. And the reason comes first up in verse 2, right? The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Now, obviously this was written by a Jew for the Jews, and it speaks of uh, the exile of Israel and Judah into captivity, right? So if you look at this map up here, okay, so uh, Seng Hong is up there, right? You see that in about 586 BC, the last of God's people were taken into exile to Babylon. But yet the psalmist here praises the Lord, hallelujah to God, that he would actually bring his people back, gather the exiles back to Israel and build up Jerusalem once again. And he will heal the brokenhearted. You see, imagine if in Singapore, it was conquered, right? And we were all forced to go and live in uh, some place, right? That we Kuala Lumpur. Who knows, right? Or Jakarta, right? I mean, we would feel very brokenhearted, right? Because we were forced to leave our home. But here, we see that the psalmist actually praises God, hallelujah to God, because God brings His people back to their homeland and rebuilds the city. Now, based on whether you believe that God is a supernatural God and that He has prophecy and foreknowledge, right? we actually know that the psalm could have been written before or after the return from exile. 
Now, for those of us who believe in a supernatural God, we actually see that the psalmist possibly could have written this before Israel and God's people actually went back to Jerusalem. Now, that's phenomenal faith in God, right? Because this psalmist, in a sense, is actually praising God for something that hasn't happened yet. Or as praising God for something that's in the process of happening. That he's saying that this is such a mighty, glorious God that he brings his people out of the superpower of the time, brings them back to Jerusalem and rebuilds the city. And in the process, heals the brokenhearted who are weeping and crying because they are taken in exile away from their homeland. Now, this passage here actually speaks to the Jew, right? Because, you know, we're not Jews, okay? But I think that the passage here actually has something to say very much to us as Christians today. Because the evidence is that God is a God who brings His people back from exile to salvation and heals the brokenhearted. And the book of Revelation chapter 22, God makes the same promise to us as Christians today. Because in a sense, if you look at the Bible, in the sense of biblical theology, we are living in exile. We are not in the promised land, right? We are not back in heaven. But Revelation chapter 22 promises us that our faithful, glorious God is going to bring us from this exile in this world back to the promised land of heaven. And this is what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing the tree crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no more need of the lamp of the light. Sorry, the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, "These words are trustworthy and true." The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, how do we know that these words are trustworthy and true? We know because God is a glorious God who has done a return from exile in the past for Israel. He brought the people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city. In the same way, we know that this is the same God. We can praise hallelujah to this God because this God has promised us to bring us back to heaven where there will be no more death and no more suffering. He heals the brokenhearted. But the passage goes on, right? And if you look here in verse uh, 2 and 3, he goes on from there to verse 4. He says, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. Now, I want you to just consider those few words for a moment, right? Because 
the passage here is looking at the phenomena of the universe. Now, I wonder how for you when I ask you the question, how big is the universe, right? So just spend a moment reflecting on uh, how insignificant you are, right? Because we're all pretty insignificant. So this is the planet Earth. And the planet Earth, I had to go and research all this. So, you know, I show you, I put a lot of effort into this, right? So this is a planet Earth. Okay, the planet Earth is part of the solar system. The next slide. Do you all know all the planets? Do you all know the planets, right? So Earth is there. You know, there's Venus, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, all those things, okay? Okay, then next one. And you see that actually the nearest star from our universe is like that little red thing there, okay? So if you wanted to think about it, uh, if our... Oh yeah, you got to pay attention, Ro. This is very important, right? Okay, so if you imagine my... my, my oh yeah, I don't have any bigger coins. What a shame. Okay, I have a 20 cent coin here. Right? Imagine that my 20 cent coin represents our sun, okay? The distance from this coin, which is our sun, to our nearest star, which is Alpha Centauri, would be like this coin to Kuala Lumpur. Now just think of the distances, right? This is our sun. The nearest planet will be Kuala Lumpur. That's like pretty far, right? Okay, pretty far. But that's just the nearest star. Okay, so the next slide. So you see our solar system is there. Next slide. Uh, okay, Alpha Centauri is down there, right? So that's our nearest star, okay? But that's just the nearest star, okay? Next slide. Because we live in the Milky Way, right? That's our galaxy, right? The solar system is part of the galaxy. So we are, the galaxy is there, and we are part of this huge thing called the Milky Way. Which is our like our galaxy. Okay, this is easy. Easy for you to understand. This is our galaxy, the Milky Way. We are in there somewhere, all the dust, right? Okay. Okay, next slide. So this is like the Hubble telescope, right? Which can the most advanced telescope can see the furthest, okay, because it's, it's not it's not like in Singapore, lots of light, right? Okay. So they were just filming one patch, right? And that one patch of sky has 10,000 galaxies. Okay, just sort of wrap your mind around that for a second, right? You know, we were like there in the middle of this huge galaxy, like our solar system is in the middle of this galaxy, and there are 10,000 galaxies in just one little snapshot of the sky. So how many galaxies are there estimated in the whole universe? Uh, next slide. Oh, okay, don't worry about it. So they, the, the scientists estimate that there are more than a billion galaxies in the whole universe. That's how much space there is out there, right? 100 billion galaxies out there with billions of planets. And the passage here says, in verse 4, He determines the number of the stars. See, that's the glory of God, right? Uh, no, you're not, you're not, sing on. He, that's a, I mean, just think about that. That's the glory of God. That's how big and powerful God is. He, he made billions of galaxies and billions of stars and planets. That's, that's the glory of God. 
But more than that, verse 5, right? Sorry, verse 4, he calls them each by name. That means that God knows every planet in every galaxy in the whole universe. So that's why if you look in the passage, if you, if you look up, okay, now you can put up the slide saying, Hong. Great is God and mighty is His power because He made all these stars and galaxies and universes, right? But His understanding has no limit because His mind is able to capture all the stars in the universe. Think of how much space and knowledge you'd have to have to know every planet in the universe and how much power you would need to have to create all these planets. Now, therefore, you know, when I read other parts of the Bible where it says, you know, God says not even a single hair will fall from your head without God knowing about it. Well, if God made all the planets and God knows all the planets, then what is one hair on your head, right? Because it's like hardly anything, right? So, that's why the Bible says that we should praise this mighty, glorious God because that is the God, right, that we worship. But this mighty, powerful, all-knowing God, what does He do? He seems to be intimately interested in our little insignificant human lives, right? Because it says there in verse 6, the Lord sustains the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. Don't you think it's a bit strange? You know, I want you to apply your mind for a moment, right? Because what is the opposite of wicked? What's the opposite of wicked? Good, right? Why doesn't he say the Lord sustains the good and casts the wicked to the ground? Why does he say the Lord sustains the humble? I think the passage here focuses on the humble because the humble person recognizes the power and the glory of God. And when you put yourself beside a God who made like gazillion billion planets and universes, and knows every one of them, how can you not be humble before God, right? Because you are like less than a speck of dust before God, right? So God sustains those who know Him and recognize Him for who He really is. But He casts down the wicked. Now, last week, um, did any of you use uh, the Bible reading plan? For the Love of God by Don Carson. Do you all read the Bible during the week? At all? You do, right? Okay, I, I, I don't embarrass you. I won't ask you what you read this week, right? Okay. Now, in the For the Love of God Bible reading plan, right? Oh, I, I'm not trying to make myself look good. I'm just telling you anyway. So, I think last Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, the Bible passage we were meant to read was Proverbs chapter 30. And it sort of happened as I was preparing the sermon. And it had a passage there about the proud, right? And it says, Those who curse, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth. 
Those whose eyes are ever so haughty and their glances are so disdainful, those whose teeth are like swords and whose jaws are set with knives, to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among the mankind. So you actually see that the part of the characteristics of the wicked are those who are proud, right? Those who are haughty because they don't know their place before God. They think they are gods, they think they are pure, they think they are good, but they are actually only little g-gods when they compare themselves to the God of the universe and the one who is all-knowing. And therefore, as we look at this passage, it really shocks us, right, that this mighty, powerful God who made the whole universe actually is going to come and relate to humanity and actually judge humanity based on our attitude towards Him. Are we going to be humble and rightly so before God? Or are we going to be proud and wicked and arrogant? Now the passage then goes on, okay? In verse 7 to 11. And this is another hallelujah, right? Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp, right? It's like praise God with music. He covers the sky with clouds and He supplies the earth with rain, like now, right? And makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse or his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So you notice here is that God, who is so huge and mighty, is like this is the big macro picture, right? And now he's focusing more and more narrowly actually bothers to take care of the earth. He is the sustaining God. right? If He's the creating God, if He's the all-knowing God, all-wise God, now He's the sustaining God who provides for us here on this earth. And not only does He provide for the big important things, He provides even for the insignificant things. So you look at the passage, right? The passage says that he even provides food for the ravens. Um, now the ravens are like uh, kind of like these irritating birds, right? Uh, they're not really good. Like you can't. They're not like big chickens which you can eat or turkey. Uh, they're kind of like just birds. Uh, in fact, in the book of Matthew, it sort of says, right? Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or sow, sorry, soap or reap or sow in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they, right? So the point that Psalm 147 is trying to make is that this big, mighty, glorious God actually bothers to sustain even the most insignificant animals in this world. Praise God, right? Praise the Lord that He actually cares in this way. But yet, there's this huge paradox because what makes this mighty, powerful, sustaining God happy? What makes Him delight, right? What, what, it says there, what is His pleasure? And the pleasure of God, next slide, is not in horses, right? Because, you know, 
kings, they may be very happy to have lots of cavalry, right? You know, because it's power. Because God is really powerful. Why does he need cavalry, right? It's like the old-fashioned tanks, right? His delight is not in the legs of many infantry, right? Soldiers. But instead, it says here, the Lord delights in those who fear him. Now that's really strange, right? Why does God take pleasure in those who fear him? Is God like, you know, uh, those, um, those like ghosts in some horror movie, right? Or like, you know, he's the alien in the alien movie. He wants you to be really scared of him. No, I don't think so, right? What it's really saying here is that when you see God as He really is, the glory of God and the might of God, the power of God, then it's natural for us in the face of such power and knowledge and wisdom, the one who's actually going to judge the wicked, to feel at least some sort of fear and trepidation. I mean, obviously, if you, I don't know, Let's say uh, someone was telling me how they went. Um, they went hiking in uh, no, they went uh, not hiking, but not hiking and hitchhiking. But they actually went hiking in Japan, right? And uh, they they bumped into a, a bear, not in the zoo, but in real life, lah, a real bear. Now, even though you're sort of told that you know, if you kind of like don't disturb the bear then the bear shouldn't attack you. When you come face to face with a bear who is such an animal, such power and might and claws and teeth, right? If you're standing there and you don't feel fear, then there's kind of like something wrong with you, right? Because how can you stand before such power and not in a sense feel fear? But imagine God. If you know that this is the God that you're standing before, how can you not feel fear, right? At least, not terror, but awe and wonder at this God. But at the same time, right, um, it says in the very next verse that, oh, oh, sorry, uh, there's a next slide, right? You can actually see there's a parallel in verse 6 to verse 11, right? Because, God delights in those who fear Him and He sustains those who are humble, right? Did you see how coming to God in humility and coming before God with fear are kind of like intertwining ways of coming before God, right? Because, you know, to be humble before God is to recognize that you're coming before someone better and bigger than you, right? To come before God with fear is to recognize the great power and majesty of God. And I think those two things come together, right? Because when you come before this God who is so mighty and powerful, you have to be humble. You can't lift up your head and be proud before God. You've got nothing to be proud of. You can't come before God and be confident before God because He's so mighty, He sees into your very soul. But the paradox is, it goes on to say, all right, that the Lord delights in those who fear Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. 
Now, how do you fear someone and yet trust someone? How do you fear God and have hope in God? Uh, I think this very famous uh, commentator, Matthew Henry, said, said it right. He said, you know, it's like putting humble confidence before God. Now, I want you to... I didn't print it up for you. Oh, yeah, you said I did, I did, I did. Now, I think that there's a distinction. We fear God in His person, in His nature. But at the same time, we are able to have hope in the character of God. You know, look, look, read carefully, right? We put our hope in His unfailing love. Because God is a God of love, unfailing love. We are fearful of Him because of His power. But at the same time, we put our trust and hope because His character is one of love, unfailing love towards us. Now, as we uh, then go on in verse 12 to 20, it says, Extol the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the end, sorry, to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Now in this section, it's, if you can look at the psalm, right? it sort of began with Israel, then it went all the way out to the universe, then narrowed down again to sustaining the earth, and now again, it's, it comes back again very specifically to God's people. Praise the Lord, right? Extol the Lord, Jerusalem and Zion. Now, uh, if you don't know what Jerusalem and Zion is, if you look at this map, right? Zion is actually the mountain right, on which Jerusalem is built around. So Zion and Jerusalem are kind of like the same, the same thing, right? Okay? Now, you can sort of see how it's amazing, right? Because this God of the universe not just sustains the earth, but He specifically elects and chooses a people for Himself. Jerusalem, Zion. And here, the psalmist says, Praise God, right? Because you have been elected, you have been chosen. He says, okay, God's word is commanding. He speaks, the rain comes. He speaks, the snow comes, the hail comes. He speaks, the snow melts. He speaks, the snow melts into a river and the river flows. Right. But this very same word, which God uses to command, has been given only to the Jews. God gave them the law. God, says that in verse 20, has done this for no other nation. They do not know 
the laws. Now, that is something truly to praise God for. Because His love has come to you. His unfailing love has chosen you and you exclusively outside of other people. Now, again, we are not Jewish, right? We are not Jerusalem. We are not Zion. It's very hard for us to read verse 12 and say, you know, extol the Lord, O Singapore, right? Extol the Lord, O Bukit Timah Hill, right? It just kind of like doesn't work, right? But actually, in the same way as the psalmist sees God choosing them as Christians, in Jesus Christ, we see how God has chosen us. Because God, through Jesus, has promised that He would give us a heavenly city of our own. So you look in chapter 21 of Revelation, which is up here on the slide, and John, uh, the apostle, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem, right, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or death, for the old order of things has passed away. So, for us, the Jerusalem and the Zion is not geographically in the Middle East. For us, we are the new Jerusalem. We are the new Zion, which comes down out of heaven. And this has happened through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the Word personified. So you know in, the, in Psalm, right, we were given the word, or they were given the word, they were given the law. We have something even better, praise God, right? We have been given the word personified in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to us, right? It's not just the commanding word, He is the word that's come to us. So in John chapter 1, uh, this is what it says, right? In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Okay, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. 
So what we see here is, if the psalmist can say, Hallelujah, praise God, then as Christians, we have all the more reason, the greater reason to say, Praise God, Hallelujah. Because they just received the law. We receive Jesus, the Word Himself. And in Jesus Christ, we can say hallelujah because our future is assured. We are promised all the riches of the heavenly realms. So the last passage I want to look at is Ephesians chapter 1, right? Which is up here. You can flick to it in your Bibles. But I want you to notice, right? Oh, Sing Hong, uh, the last slide. You notice it begins with a hallelujah as well, right? Praise to God. And what Ephesians 1 says, as Christians, hallelujah, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, I think this is so important for us, right? Because when you come to church, like I said, we do not just come for head knowledge, but if we come and we're not overwhelmed by the glory and the majesty and the power and the wisdom and the awesomeness of God, then in a sense, we don't have the, the resources to continue in our Christian world. So, I remember a real story where a pastor was sharing about how, I think he's a pastor in America, and he said that in his congregation, there was a woman who had an alcoholic uh, an abusive husband. And um, she had children who were rebellious and disobedient. And week after week, she used to come to church. And, you know, the pastor asked her how she continued in a Christian walk. And this lady who had a really tough life shared that, you know, every week when she came, when she saw the glory of God, and the faithfulness of this God to her, it gave her the strength to keep going on. And I think that's so true, right? Because imagine if you, you really know, not just in your mind, but your heart, that this is a God who makes billions of planets, who knows all these planets, who knows your problems, who has shown you unfailing love, who will bring you to heaven, who's watching over you in every moment, has every wisdom of the, the whole universe, when you have God like that at your back, right? no matter what happens, you can still praise God and sing hallelujah because you know that your future is assured. Like whatever happens, right? I mean, who can overcome this God? I mean, this God is just too mighty for you to, 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 to ever lose faith in. But the problem is that if we don't praise God and sing hallelujah because we don't know the greatness of God and we think that this God is just slightly bigger than me or slightly more powerful than me and slightly more knowledgeable and wise than me, then when we sing hallelujah to such a small God, then no wonder when we face difficulties and troubles, we become 
disillusioned or we have doubt or we despair. But if you know the real power of God behind you, the real unfailing love of God behind you, if you know this God who knows everything behind you, then you can sing praise to the Lord. You can sing hallelujah because you can see this great glory of God which is actually on your side, choosing you, watching over you in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I hope that uh, as you study this passage as Christians, we'll be able to see the glory and the majesty of God and how truly as we humble ourselves and fear Him and put our hope in Him, uh, there is really nothing to fear and nothing to despair, but just to praise God in hallelujah. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we truly want to thank you for what a wonderful God you are. You made the billions of planets in a, in a space of which is beyond our grasp, our understanding. You have knowledge. You can call each one of them by name. But yet, you are concerned about the whole of creation. You sustain it. You feed it. Even the most insignificant animal. Even more, we want to praise you, God, for you have chosen a people as your very own. And through Jesus Christ, he has come now to save us. Dear Father, we pray that we will sing our hallelujahs to you, knowing how great and mighty and wise you are. And that as a result of coming and seeing your glory afresh, we will be able to praise you and nothing on this earth will be able to shake our confidence in you. For who on earth can be like you? And if you are for us, then who can be against us? And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.